I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, Mike Rothschild is a journalist who specializes in the topic of right-wing conspiracy culture. In 2021, he came out with the book The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. In many ways, his latest title can be seen as something of a follow-up. Jewish Space Lasers. The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. Mike was gracious enough to take some time out of his schedule to discuss the book and explore with me the origins of the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories surrounding the Rothschild banking family, and how those conspiracy theories continue to reverberate today, especially amongst the right wing in America. In many ways, the Rothschild conspiracy theory has gone from the fringes of the right to the mainstream. We'll be discussing all of that and much more, including a little bit of history about the 1930s movie House of Rothschild, which starred horror icon Boris Karloff. We'll also talk about such figures as the fascist modernist poet Ezra Pound and his role in creating the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory narrative around the Federal Reserve that has since been taken up by figures like Glenn Beck. All that and much, much more on this edition of Parallax Views. And with that being said, let's get right to it 
with Mike Rothschild. By the way, no relation to the banking family. Welcome to Parallax News Guest that I'm very interested to be speaking with, Mike Rothschild. He's known for his book, The Storm is Upon Us, about QAnon, and his new book is Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. And I should mention, Mike Rothschild is not any related in any way to the <laughs> famous Rothschild family. Have, have you gotten that yet from the, the conspiracy theorists? <laughs> I have I have been getting that uh, since I started writing about conspiracy theories. I, I would get comments, you know, oh, a Rothschild debunking conspiracy theories. You know, the Matrix must be broken. Time to unplug the simulation. Um, but, you know, growing up, I never I knew I wasn't related to the Rothschilds. I never really thought about it. Nobody thought I was. But getting into this work where their name comes up over and over and over again, it is. It has definitely been uh, part of my daily life. You know, where I wanted to start was uh, this book isn't necessarily a book simply about the Rothschilds. It's, it's really about the conspiracy theories that have come up around the Rothschilds, the anti-Semitism directed towards them. And also, I would say how that sort of anti-Semitic conspiracy theory about the Rothschilds has uh, sort of reiterated itself. Um, in attacking figures like George Soros or even more recently, uh, someone like Larry Fink of BlackRock. And it's interesting to me because I, I think, you know, one could make legitimate criticisms of a figure like Soros or, uh, you know, Larry F Fink of BlackRock. Oh, sure. But sure. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, I knew very early on I didn't want to write a, a, another full-length biography of the Rothschilds. There are a number of them, and and some of them are better than others. And you know, I used some as as resources for the book. But with the Rothschilds, the most interesting part of the story is kind of the first century. Once you get into what they're doing right now, it's really not all that interesting. They're a wealthy family. Some of them are involved in banking. Some of them aren't. And they're really not that different from any other kind of old world banking family. So I, you know, I talk about the the sort of the history and some of the biographical aspects because I think those are things you have to know to understand the mythical version of the Rothschilds. And it's really the mythical version that I was much more interested in, particularly when it came to the United States, because the Rothschilds had no real presence in the United States. But the myths and the conspiracy theories about them are massive here. And you know, to your point, I it is absolutely possible to criticize the Rothschilds, Soros. I, you know, I talk quite a bit in the book about the Rothschilds links to people like Cecil Rhodes and, and De Beers. But the attacking of kind of globalists or international financiers or claiming the Rothschilds fund both sides of every war, that's not criticism. Those are just conspiracy theories and anti-Semitic tropes. It's not saying anything that involves any kind of deep thought about the family. You're just attacking wealthy Jewish people. You know, I have to be honest. I have a pet conspiracy theory of my own. Mm. I, I kind of think that a lot of these conspiracy theories about Soros, about the Rothschilds, uh, are a way to maybe distract from very real issues uh, centered on things like wealth concentration and to sort of scapegoat, you know, I, I would say Jewish people. Oh, absolutely. I... 
I don't even know that there's any sort of organized conspiracy. You know, I don't know that like the Cokes and the Waltons and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are like all sitting in a room somewhere thinking of how they can throw the scent off of, of the media. I think, though, that a lot of those families are probably very happy to have, you know, centuries of attacks on the Rothschilds and more recently Soros, because it it really does keep our eye off the ball of what these big banks are doing, what the government is doing or not doing. You know, the conspiracy theories absolutely serve as a distraction. A lot of times they serve as busy work just to keep people angry and uh, buying books and buying content and and focused on the things that don't matter all that much. I was going to say, too, it can be a lucrative uh, business for some people. You know, I was recently reading um, an SPLC report on David Duke, who has made a living off this. Dude has oh, never yeah. worked a day in his life. <laughs> he just gets donations from people, and yeah. then he blows it in Vegas gambling. And when, when you know, people call him on it, he'll say, oh, you know, I was learning how to fight Zog by gambling. I want to make <laughs> more money to wheel. help fight. <laughs> right, right, to, to help the cause. And I'm thinking to myself – Wow, this is amazing. There are people using these horrible anti-Semitic conspiracy theories to literally, you know, make a living for themselves without having to really do any real work. Yeah, one of the things that really stunned me in researching and writing the book was the uh, lucrativeness of this material going all the way back to the 1840s. This, the original anti-Rothschild pamphlet, this this 36-page uh, piece of work by this writer who went under the pen name Satan and was talking about This is Nathan the one Roth that relates to Waterloo, right? Yes, this is the okay. origin of the Waterloo myth, and, and also of the myth that the Rothschild train lines were cheap and shoddy and that the Rothschilds didn't care, all that stuff. That pamphlet sold 60,000 copies. And, and it was written under the pen name Satan. Satan, yes. The, the actual writer of it, and we don't actually know his real name for sure is probably George Matthew Dernvale, but he wrote under Satan, uh, you know, subtle there. Um, yeah, it was a huge seller. The, there's some of these other books, this book that I'd never really heard of until I started working on this, this book called Jewish France by Edouard Drummond in uh, 1886, sold 500,000 copies. It was the most popular book in France for two years. You look at stuff like None Dare Call It Conspiracy, Behold a Pale Horse, Pat Robertson's book, The New World Order. They sold hundreds of thousands or millions of copies. It's it's incredibly lucrative to attack anti, to attack Jews and Jewish wealth. So let's go back to Waterloo. Uh, talk about uh, Napoleon Bonaparte and uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about the Rothschilds and their origins, if you could. Sure. So, the of course, the Battle of Waterloo takes place in 1815 and is the culmination of the Napoleonic Wars. And uh, the Rothschilds did play a major role in financing the armies of Great Britain and Prussia and the alliance against Napoleon. They were they were uh, hiding their their own money. They were hiding the, the wealth of the Elector of Hesse, uh, one of the sort of kingpins of the uh, states of the Holy Roman Empire. They made a lot of money off it. And 30 years later, we get this pamphlet that accuses Nathan Rothschild, who's the middle son of Mayor Amschel Rothschild, who was the head of the family in London, who did make a huge amount of money off the Napoleonic Wars, accuses Nathan of being at the Battle of Waterloo, 
being so close that he could smell the cannon smoke, seeing that Napoleon was about to be defeated, getting on a fine stallion, riding across Belgium in the middle of the night, braving a once in a century channel storm to get to London. He gets to the London Stock Exchange. He's exhausted. He looks defeated. The other stockbrokers are going, Rothschild knows what happens. We've lost the battle. They start dumping their stocks. Meanwhile, Nathan is uh, signaling his agents to buy up all these depressed stocks. And then the real news of Waterloo that Napoleon has lost comes in. These stocks skyrocket in value. And Nathan Rothschild suddenly has enough money to control the British money supply. Now, absolutely none of that happened. Uh, Nathan was not at the Battle of Waterloo. There was no great score from, from the outcome of the battle. That's just, it's a myth. It is It is 100% a myth. But in the socialist fervor of the revolutions of 1848, which were going on right around the time that pamphlet came out, and there was a great deal of focus on wealth concentration, and particularly Jewish wealth concentration, of, of whom the Rothschilds were the most visible, that story really took off. And it was repeated in legitimate biographies of the family. It was repurposed by the Nazis in their 1940 propaganda films. It's repurposed by Alex Jones. Even today, he will still talk about Waterloo and the Rothschilds. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's not true, but it is a very powerful and very cinematic myth. Could you talk a little bit about maybe the history of the Rothschilds um, and how they built their wealth? And also, how does this sort of tie into, I guess, um, you know, this this fear of of usury or, you know, oh, yeah. the, the evil money lenders sort of myth. And maybe how does that tie into, you know, different religious animosities? Sure. The you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is the origin of tropes about Jews and money. The idea that Jews are all greedy, Jews are all cheap, or Jews are just better with money. They have innate wisdom. They they just know. Yeah, isn't there how a to... whole book that you mentioned called like there the are many wisdom books. of the, there the Jewish There are many finance. books. <laughs> yeah, there's many books, many videos. They're very popular in Asia. These uh, there's a whole genre of Jewish business books, like you know, doing business the Jewish way, which is like thanks. <laughs> this is sort of a backhanded compliment. But those myths really stuck because in the Middle Ages, Jewish communities were often the only ones who were allowed to lend money at interest because of canon law prohibitions on what was called usury. And usury was essentially lending money at too high an interest rate. And of course, nobody could decide what that was, but they knew it was the worst thing you could do. At the same time, the leaders of these states of the Holy Roman Empire, these, you know, these, you know, burgeoning nation states, they needed money. They needed money for their palaces. The churches needed money to build their, their great edifices. The leaders needed money for war. So they needed money and the Jewish communities had access to it. So it was a very tenuous relationship for quite a long time until you started to see a relaxing of those prohibitions. Uh, Christians did start to get into banking a little bit more. And the Jewish um, you know, grip, I guess you could say, on finance really did start to ease a little bit. But the Rothschilds came in sort of right at the tail end of that. And you know, Mayor Amschel Rothschild, he lived in the Frankfurt ghetto in a, in a small community literally called the Judengasse, the Jews' lane. It was this tiny little walled city within a city. There were all kinds of restrictions on what the Jews in it could do. But Mayer was able to travel because he became the court banker of the crown prince of Hesse. 
Um, and the, the, this, the geography of the Holy Roman Empire is really complicated, but essentially Mayer gained a sort of official position and it allowed him to travel, it allowed him to build up his business. When he he started having children, his oldest son, Amschel, got into the business in Frankfurt. Eventually, his other sons went to the financial capitals of Europe uh, over a couple of decades. And they built up a business based on loan making, on gold, on uh, dealing in rare coins and metals, in in money changing. All the states of the Holy Roman Empire had different currencies, so they they built up this business, and then they became responsible for the vast fortune of the Elector of Hesse, and he made that money through the loaning of mercenaries who were called Hessians. These are the same Hessians that fought for the British in the American Revolution. So all of these things are sort of connected to how business was done back then. And the Rothschilds were just really good at it and in the right place at the right time. And and also, I guess, you know, there's always that issue of, you know, at at this point in time, Jewish people were sort of kept out of certain professions. And this was one of the professions they could get into. Right. Jews were not allowed to own land for the most part. And they were kept out of agriculture. And if you couldn't do what most people were doing, you had to do something else. And they they had these communities where they were able to loan money to each other. They were able to support each other that way. And they became some of the wealthiest people in their realms while also having some of the most restricted rights. Now, I'm really curious as to how the sort of Rothschild conspiracy theory comes to the U.S. Because I've often told people, I feel like the United States has often been uh, steeped in conspiracy theories against marginalized groups. You know, in the distant past, there were uh, anti-Mason parties. There was a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment and a lot of interesting uh, sort of conspiracy theories attacking the Vatican, even ones claiming, oh, it was done by uh, uh, the, the Lincoln assassination was done by the Catholics. Uh, so there's always been a lot of conspiracy theories permeating in American culture. How do the Rothschilds end up becoming a center for conspiracy theories in America? Well, that's a good question. And it should be noted that uh, the Rothschilds are also accused of having assassinated Lincoln. So it does start to become a little bit like the Kennedy assassination, where there's like 70 different culprits. In the late 1800s, there is a, a mass diaspora of Jews leaving particularly Eastern Europe, but also Germany and coming to the United States. And they take with them the stories about the successes of the Rothschild family. The Rothschilds are seen as a, a beacon of aspiration, something that you could be one day if you work hard enough. You you could have the palaces, you could have the artwork. And those stories start to raise the ire of other Americans, more more sort of native-born Americans, you know, not you know, not immigrants, talking about their power and their control and the the fear of sort of foreign bankers meddling in American affairs, particularly in central banking, which of course America was very averse to. And eventually the idea arises that the Jewish German families of England and Western Europe, particularly the Rothschilds, are exerting undue influence over American political affairs. And this really starts to come to a head during the Civil War because the Rothschilds agent in New York was a Democrat, and it was getting involved in Democratic Party politics and supported Abraham Lincoln's opponent in the 1864 election, General McClellan. 
So there's all these op-eds about the Rothschilds own McClellan. They're, you know, they're interfering. They own all this Confederate debt. They, they didn't own any Confederate debt. They didn't loan to either side in the Civil War. But these myths just stick. And so the idea of the Rothschilds as these powerful string-pulling meddlers really emerges in the U.S. press. And it has nothing to do with reality because the Rothschilds had almost no presence in the United States. Since I mentioned how conspiracy theories have historically been used, uh, especially grand conspiracy narratives, I should say, have often been used uh, to attack various groups, whether it's Jews or or Catholics or now I would say trans people. Can you talk about the ways in which, you know, this issue goes far beyond just anti-Semitism into how conspiracy theories are used to attack numerous different groups? Sure. You know, if you believe the conspiracy theories about one group, you're probably going to believe the conspiracy theories about another group. So if you think there is a cabal of powerful Jews who've been running the world for thousands of years, you probably also think that they use LGBTQ people and gay rights organizations and trans people to further their various agendas. And you find a lot of this kind of stuff mixed up in anti-Jewish propaganda, the idea that the the Jewish insiders are using race mixing and they're using progressivism to pollute our our thoughts and pollute our bloodlines. I mean, it's like this Dr. Strangelove kind of stuff, but it really works because people are afraid of things they don't understand. They're afraid of somebody getting rights that they don't have, and they're afraid that someone is getting something that they're not going to get there. They feel a lot of people feel like there is only a certain amount of wealth or power or uh, freedom in the world. And if some other group gets more of it, they get less of it. And of course, that's not how concepts like freedom and rights work. But if you're really scared, and you've been told that this group is manipulating things to keep you down, and they're using this other out group to, as their foot soldiers, you're going to you're going to wrap all of this together in a grand conspiracy. One thing I, I was telling you before we started recording that I wanted to talk about, and maybe this could tie into the, the sort of World War II era and the rise of the Nazis, is uh, the movie House of Rothschild, mm -hmm. uh, which starred the great horror icon Boris Karloff. Halloween is coming up, so I thought it would be cool to <laughs> talk about this uh, non-horror movie starring the great Boris Karloff, Frankenstein's monster. Uh, maybe you could give us a history of this film. Sure. So uh, it's it's a really, really interesting part of the book because it delves into a part of Hollywood that is not only not owned by Jews, but really worked against Jewish interests. There, there was essentially a fear in the early 30s of losing the German film market. And it, this was based on the riots that took place in Germany in 1930 when All Quiet on the Western Front came out. Uh, it was seen as anti anti-German, the Nazis rioted, they released rats and stink bombs in the theaters, and Hollywood studios were very scared of losing this market. So there was started to be a very hands-off kind of sentiment about anything dramatizing uh, modern Germany, Hitler, the Nazis, or the Jewish plight. But in 1933, the you, actor- You cut out there for a second. Was there a specific oh, sure. movie you mentioned? Uh, yeah, All Quiet on the Western Front okay. in 1930. There were these riots that took place. Uh, the Nazis basically uh, protested this film, and they did it in a way that kind of scared Hollywood from uh, alienating the German film market. 
1933, the actor George Arliss, who had just won an Oscar for playing Benjamin Disraeli, finds this play script about the Rothschilds. And he gets together with the producer, uh, Daryl Zanuck, to adapt it into a film. And this is the House of Rothschild. And it's a, uh, Arliss plays a dual role in it. He plays uh, Mayor, and then he play, later on he plays Nathan. And it's a very fictionalized version of the story of the Rothschilds. But it's told in a way that is not histor- not necessarily historically accurate, but is told as an affirmation of the dignity of the Jewish people and of the accomplishments of the Jewish people in Europe through the eyes of the Rothschild family, a family that everybody would know at that point. And the film is a hit. It's, it grosses a million dollars. It's an Oscar nominee. So you would think there would be all these other Jewish stories. But this is the point where the, the you know Nazi, the, now the Nazis actually have taken control of Germany and, they re, and Hollywood just does not want to inflame anti-Jewish sentiment and uh, and lose the German film market. So there's really a moratorium on Jewish stories and anti-Nazi stories for about another five years until the Nazis actually invade Poland and then that goes away. But this is a really critical time and the and Hollywood is basically just doing nothing, uh, not actively supporting the Nazis, but doing nothing to push back. And of course, the fears about the film being used against Jews actually are true because the 1940 Nazi propaganda film, The Eternal Jew, which is one of the most vile things I've ever seen, uses some of the early scenes from the House of Rothschild as an example of uh, the depravity of the Rothschild family and of Jewish people, because the early portrayal of Mayer in in the House of Rothschild is fairly unfortunate. He's seen he's seen as kind of a sniveling schemer. Um it, it's it's not uh it's not the most flattering portrayal. But the Nazis basically take this story and use it for their own ends, which is really what a lot of people I was Jewish gonna say they even made in nineteen forty Nazi Germany even made their own movie called The Rothschilds. Right. There's a second film that comes out that is basically the photo negative of the House of Rothschild called the Rothschild shares at Waterloo. It's the exact same story, except it's flipped around to make the Rothschild the villain. It's it's like it, it is it's wild um, just how they were able to use this story for their own ends. Do you happen to know who, who does uh, Boris Karloff play in the movie? Boris Karloff plays a fictional count um, that's kind of an amalgam of a couple of different characters. This very anti-Semitic German count who wants Nathan Rothschild arrested and is, you know, trying to, you know, bring the the Rothschild family down. Of course, he gets his comeuppance at the end when, you know, Nathan, you know, makes his big score off of Waterloo. Uh, So it's a it's a fictional character. Was this movie then, it, it was kind of specifically responding then to the rise of Nazism and the anti-Semitism of Nazism. Yeah, it was done as a response to ramp, the ramping up of Jewish persecution in a way that would not inflame uh, German audiences. So maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, just the anti-Semitism that comes out of Nazi Germany and how it, you know, gets to America. I mean, it's already in America, but how how do these uh, forces in Germany and America sort of collide with each other? Yeah, there is a, the inner, the isolationist movement of the 1930s um, was very scared of another war. 
And a lot of people were. I mean, the Europe in general, Western Europe, England, France were very scared of another war with Germany. And, you know, seeing the destruction that it wrought, the, the scars it left on an entire generation. And a number of American isolationists truly believed that Jewish power was manipulating the West to get into a war with Nazi Germany and that America had no interest in this war. It, it did not serve us at all and that we needed to stay out of it. And these were major figures. These were major figures like Charles Lindbergh, like Ezra Pound, uh, you know, Christian nationalists like Gerald L. K. Smith. You know, these people were um, very intent on, on not being exploited by what they perceived as a Jewish conspiracy. And they they meshed very well with the fascists in Europe. You know, we saw. Uh, you know, 20,000 American Nazis filling up Madison Square Garden, marching, not, not even so much to support Nazi Germany, but in, in the service of peace, that it wasn't in our interests to go to war with Nazi Germany. Well, you know, Nazi Germany kind of took care of that eventually. And this, this America First movement really melted away. I mean, once Pearl Harbor happened, the vast majority of these people immediately got on board with the war effort. Now, they were still conspiracy theorists, and they were still anti-Semitic, but once the war actually started, you didn't have this kind of, you know, grand disloyalty. And of course, some of these people were arrested for treason. Uh, but there was a real feeling that there was Jewish manipulation that was going to get us into another war with Germany. And a lot of them took it out on the Rothschilds. So after World War II, it feels like, you know, how are people still going to buy into these sort of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about the Rothschilds? How does it sort of manage to continue on, uh, especially in the U.S. after World War II? It gets very wrapped up in the Red Scare. And I was going to say, I, I feel yeah. like not not to interrupt you, but uh, sure. you know, I think there's a, a definite connection between sort of the Cold War McCarthyite Red Scare and you know, anti-communism and anti-Semitism sort of end up meshing together in a lot of ways. Yeah, there's a fear of what becomes known as Judeo-Bolshevism, that the Jews have their their agents in Moscow who are directing, uh, you know, all of the activities to undermine American patriotism and undermine our our ability to fight the Soviets when the grand the grand World War Three comes. It's going to be the Jews who get us into it and are and are disloyal. And this powers a huge sort of new outgrowth of anti-Semitism, uh, you know, powers a lot of uh, American extremism. You know, I found these extremist newsletters that are just full of attacks on, on Jews and Jewish links to communism. I mean, never mind that Jews in the Soviet Union suffered terribly. I mean, Stalin at one point, right before he died, was starting to make plans to liquidate the entire Jewish population in the Soviet Union. It, you know, there, there's no truth in this, but the the immediate post-war period, particularly, you know, after the Soviets got the bomb, and then as we get into the Korean War, it's so shot through with paranoia and fear of, of you know, of, of a Soviet first strike. And a lot of Jews were seen as as loyal to Moscow. It was not true. I mean, there were some Jewish communists, but there were a lot of Jews who weren't communists. 
And this powers this whole new outgrowth of anti-Jewish sentiment that really starts to infiltrate extremism. You've got the white citizens councils of the post-Brown versus Board of Education period that get in on this. And they can't agree on much, but they can agree that the Jew is the ultimate string puller of what the Soviets and what the blacks and what the liberals are doing. Yeah, I was going to say real quick, I mean, you know, there there were like Jewish immigrants that were interested in things like socialism. And I think rightfully so, given that, you know, um, I I could see why someone from a working class background would be attracted to that. And I do I do think there's value in uh, what's been called the, the Jewish radical tradition with. Uh, certain socialists, but it, it seems like that turns into this, you know, that is used to justify this sort of insane anti-Semitism by right-wingers. Right. And we see the same thing happen now. It's the actions of a few Jewish people who are attracted to socialism the same way some Gentile people are, the same, the way some atheists are. They They use the activities of a few well-known people to attack the entire religion. And we, you know, this none of this is that's going on right now. None of it's new. It wasn't new in the 50s. It's it's just repeated over and over. So someone we have to talk about, you mentioned Ezra Pound. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's known as one of the great modernist poets, but dude was a hardcore fascist. He did those oh, yeah. uh yeah, he did like radio broadcasts in Italy, just attacking yeah. the Jews, and then yeah. He has a follower in the form of this figure by the name of Eustace Mullins. And that's yes. where a lot of this Federal Reserve stuff comes from. I'm very interested here. What's the history of, of Eustace Mullins and his impact on a lot of these conspiracy theories? Yeah, Pound is really one of the most well-known pre-war isolationists. He was desperate to keep the U.S. out of another war that he thought would be uh, caused by Jewish usury. He's writing letters to Roosevelt. He eventually uh, emigrates to Italy, and he's a full-blown fascist. I mean, he really he's doing radio broadcasts for Mussolini. He's he's writing you know horribly anti-Semitic poems. Uh, he's attacking the Rothschilds constantly, and of course, when the war ends, he's arrested. And he's sent back to Washington, D.C. He's institutionalized. And he gains this following of kind of fellow travelers in the anti-Semitic fringe world. And Pound is, you know, giving all these people copies of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and all this other sort of bargain basement anti-Semitic stuff. And one of the followers that he gains is is a, a veteran named Eustace Mullins. He was born in the early 20s. He fought in the war. And very quickly gets pulled into the sort of post-war anti-Semitic. All of this is the fault of the Jews. You know, the the wealthy Jews caused all of this and they profited off the Holocaust. And he gets into Pound's orbit. And at some point, as Mullins tells the story, Pound uh, takes out a $10 bill and and tells uh, Mullins to do some research on the Federal Reserve. I mean, automatically, like your hackles should be up. So the book that Pound or that Mullins eventually releases is uh, it, it eventually becomes Secrets of the Federal Reserve. Pound publishes it on his or one of a couple of Pound's acolytes publish it on a on a private press. becomes a huge hit, and it is one of the foundational works of post war conspiracy theories. It's it's still cited all the time. People like Alex Jones, people like David Icke just extol this book as, you know, really breaking open the hidden truths of banking in America. And of course, real, the hidden real quick truth in that regard, did. not to sure. not to interrupt you, but just sure. to put a, a, a sort of fine point on sure. on what you're saying about its influence. You know, eventually you have this Bircher by the name of G. Edward Griffin, 
who right. sort of like basically writes his own version of Mullen's book. And I think he takes a lot from Mullen's yeah. book called The Creature from Jekyll Island. Right. And eventually you can see like G. Edward Griffin was interviewed years back by like Glenn Beck. So this stuff ends up seeping into the mainstream, but go on. Yeah, this stuff becomes hugely popular. Uh, Mullins' book is a big hit. Uh, Creature from Jekyll Island's a big hit. Glenn Beck is a big fan. Uh, and, and Beck has extolled so many of these people. Uh, it's really unbelievable. But Mullins becomes the figure who really sort of merges the pre-war fascism of people like Pound and the internet era conspiracism of Alex Jones. Alex Jones interviewed Eustace Mullins. Mullins only died, I think, about 10 years ago. Yeah, and I, I think I think uh, Alex Jones spoke very fondly of him, calling him like the granddaddy of this movement against the yeah. Federal Reserve, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, Jones is a huge, huge acolyte of Mullins. Uh, you know, a, a lot of these other people like Cleon Skousen and Gary Allen. You know, I, I want to get into that, but I, yeah. I, I want to focus on yeah. Mullins for a second here. What exactly is his theory uh, about the Federal Reserve? Basically, the his theory, I mean, the very, very short version is that it's basically just a Jewish scam, is that the Federal Reserve keeps us in debt keeps our tax money going not to pay this debt. It keeps basically keeps the money going to the holders of the debt, but the debt's not real. The debt is held by powerful Jewish banking families. Chief among them are the Rothschilds. Now, the Rothschilds had nothing to do with the creation of the Federal Reserve. Nothing. Um, you, you know, there, there were six people at those initial meetings on Jekyll Island. None of them are Rothschilds. And we have, we, you know, we have the details of all those meetings. There's no secret version of it. But the idea that this, this entire Federal Reserve system is just a giant Jewish scam is very, very popular. And it really catches on with a lot of people. Now, we've talked a little bit about uh, the Birchers. I've mentioned them in passing. And you, of course, mentioned the sort of I would say it's almost like a Bible to the John Birch Society, which is uh, None Dare Call It Conspiracy by Gary Allen. Could you talk a little bit about Gary Allen? Because I think people don't realize just how much Birchers have influenced the right wing over the years, specifically Alex Jones, who he will cite None Dare Call It Conspiracy as yeah. the book that put him on the road to where yeah. he's at now. Yeah, so Gary Allen was a was a speechwriter for the John Birch Society. He wrote a lot of uh, what Robert Welsh would say in his speeches. Of course, Welsh was also an anti Rothschild conspiracy theorist. Right, Robert Welsh, whole... for people that don't know, founded yeah. the John Birch Society. Right, right. Um, there's a whole other level of, of anti Semitic crazy there. But Allen's book, uh, it's it's a lot different than a lot of these other books. Um, a lot of these books are really really hard to read. You know, if you get to something, well, maybe we'll talk about this a little later, a book like Behold a Pale Horse or uh, Which Way Western Man from the early 70s. I mean, even like Secrets of the Federal Reserve. Th these books are not that easy to read. They're long. They're repetitive. They're just not that interesting. Uh, None Dare is is very short. It's written in a very hypnotic kind of rat-a-tat style, can really draw the reader in. And in the kind of Watergate you know, you know, height of the Birchers in the early 70s this books, a huge hit, sells millions of copies. And of course, one of its acolytes was the young Alex Jones, who did talk about the, that being the book that really, you know, quote, opened his eyes to what they were doing. And, it, you know, he talks about it still to this day. Why was that book so seminal? I mean, other than the the style 
Like what, what was Gary Webb's sort of theory? Was it just this sort of like, uh, you know, the 300 people that control the world type narrative? It's very similar to that. Uh, you know, it, it, th this conspiracy is never really that different. It's always like there's a central cabal. You can call it the Illuminati, the, you know, the committee of 300, the council of 13, whatever, whatever you want to call it that week, that there is a secret cabal of Jews who are basically just keeping everybody down. And, you know, my focus on the book is the book's uh, attacks on the Rothschilds. And one of the things that Alan really does is solidify this idea that the Rothschilds were, weren't real Jews. They they kind of sat out World War II and they didn't do anything to help other Jews. And they were making money off both sides. And even other Jews should hate the Rothschilds because of what they did to the Jewish people. And it very really solidifies that idea of, well, we're not anti-Semitic. We don't hate all the Jews. We just hate the globalists, the bankers, the financiers. And of course, that's very easy to package that up in various dog whistles and codes that you then send out to your followers who know what you're talking about, but you're not explicitly saying, yeah, we hate the Jews and they deserve what they got. It's just like, oh, we just don't like the bankers. The bankers right, are the right. ones- I'm, I'm assuming uh, some of these like Birchers would say, Oh, you know, I'm I'm not anti-Semitic. I, I just like the Rockefeller plan too. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, oh, I'm not in I just hate all rich people, you know, uh, while secretly, you know, making money hand over fist over with this stuff. How how deep does that go with the John Birch Society? Because I, I think it's interesting. The John Birch Society, you know, they, they seem to know how to cover up some of their past. They had a movie that they made in the 60s called Anarchy USA, where they brutally attack the civil rights movement as a communist mm -hmm. plot. And they've all but purged that from their organization, uh, like publicly, you know, they don't really promote that. But how deep does the anti-Semitism go when it comes to something like the Birch Society? Oh, it's it's hugely deep. I mean, it's it's almost foundational. It, you need somebody to be funding all of these, these grand plots. And, the, you know, the details of all the various conspiracies are really not that important um, because none of them are real. So it doesn't really matter kind of, whether it's this group or that group, the, the grand conspiracy is always that there is a very, you know, a, a cabal at the very top. That cabal is funded by by Jewish power and Jewish wealth. And the Rothschilds are principal among that. And they're using all of these different things. They're using pornography. They're using civil rights. They're using gay rights. They're using rock music, all of these different things to sap the power and the will of the American people to fight back. And so it's always the Jews who are doing this, whether you're talking about the Birchers, whether you're talking about extremist, you know, other extremist groups, or whether you're talking about some of the, you know, neo-Nazi groups that we have today. You also mentioned a figure I was interested in talking about, uh, Cleon Skousen, who I think yes, his Cleon son, Joel Skousen, is still doing some type of conspiracy uh, it's his stuff nephew. Today. Yeah, uh, oh, Joel his is his nephew. Okay. Yeah, who is still a regular on InfoWars. So, so who is... Cleon Skousen, because I think he comes from a Mormon background. He's yeah. kind of interesting character. He wrote a book called uh, The Naked Capitalist, which I believe uh, Reagan was a fan of. Yes. Uh, so uh, Cleon Skousen was a, a very, very resolute Mormon. He was also an ex-FBI agent, I believe. And he, this guy was so off the deep end that even a lot of other crank groups and extremist groups just did not want this guy. But he was a really prolific writer. 
And he wrote a, a couple of books that are really, really still influential in right-wing extremism and conspiracies. One was The Naked Communist, another was The Naked Capitalist. And the the thrust of this book is, is really the same as these other books, that there's this worldwide powerful cabal that has been manipulating finance, manipulating history, manipulating media. And again, it's the Jews. And again, it's the Rothschilds who are in control of the Jews. One of the, you know, one of the things about these books is that they really start to meld together. Um, I, I don't, you know, I don't, I couldn't do a point by point of what the differences are between Secrets of the Federal Reserve, None Dare, or the Naked Capitalists, because they're really all telling the same story. But if you believe in that story, you're going to buy every single thing that points it out because they're all revealing new details, new info. And of course, they you feel like they're being suppressed. But Skousen was another one of those figures who was very, very popular on the far right and almost unknown outside of that. How does this kind of thing have the potential to leak into, uh, if not like the, well, now I would say it's part of the mainstream, right? I think the mainstream right has been taken over by this, but I think there's a long history of that. You know, I, I think- these figures like uh, Cleon Skousen uh, influenced people like maybe uh, Phyllis Schlafly of the mm -hmm. Eagles Forum. You know, yeah. I, I mentioned Reagan earlier. How does this stuff uh, during maybe the 20th century uh, mesh with mainstream conservatism or how does it seep in to the mainstream? A lot of this is used as an explanation for some of the things that are going on. And that's classic conspiracy stuff. That is taking... Uh, this sort of suppressed story that they don't want you to know and and using it kind of as an explanation for what's going on. And that's one of the, the things that may, really makes conspiracy theories appealing in general is that they offer a solution to the problem. They offer order out of chaos. Now, of course, a lot of these problems are not, not actually real, or if they are, they're not really applicable to most people. But they they offer sort of a comfort that someone is in control of all this stuff. So when you've got a popular figure like Glenn Beck who starts extolling the virtues of Skousen or uh, you know a, a, somebody like Nesta Webster, the the British fascist who did an amazing job of laundering the protocols of the elders of Zion. What was her it book? Gives, Wasn't it like the the subversions of the Illuminati or something? Was yeah, book? she wrote a couple of books in the twenties that basically took the protocols of the Elders of Zion and didn't reprint them word for word, but offered like interpretations of them that actually make them sort of easier to read. Uh, and of course, her work was very influential on a whole host of post war you know, conspiracy theorists and anti semites, going all the way up to Pat Robertson in the nineties. But when you have somebody like Beck, like a trusted figure who's on TV every day talking about, you know, oh, they've had this plan forever. And here are the truth tellers who who were exposing it decades ago. And look what they did to them. It, it kind of puts you in the in the frame of mind of having secret knowledge of knowing something that other people don't know and that the powerful powerful people don't want you to know. And that lure of secret knowledge is really, really powerful. It's still really powerful. It's what really drives things like QAnon. The idea of there's a secret truth, there's a parallel story out there, and here is somebody who is who finally has the courage to tell it. That lets you feel like you're part of something bigger than your own life. I guess what I was getting at, though, was I think a lot of people uh, that are unfamiliar uh, with the history of this, think that this sort of just 
happened all of a sudden when Trump got in office and QAnon <laughs> rose. Yeah. But, yeah. it, you know, Glenn Beck was pushing this creature from Jekyll Island stuff in the Obama era and the Tea Party yeah. era. So is there a longer history to this going back before, like this seeping into movement conservatism before even Trumpism came along, I guess is what oh, I'm oh, asking. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you have, you know, the the far right in America was hugely influential in the 50s and 60s. Uh, law, you know, this is before the internet. This is before Trump. I mean, this is this is a time when even in the 50s, people are talking about the encroachment of civil rights and, you know, taking, you know, re rewriting America and taking America away from Christian white men. You, you know, one of the things I find in the in the book is um, I found a document that had the circulation numbers of a lot of these extremist newsletters, these things like common sense, like the Liberty Lobby newsletters. And they are they are going out to hundreds of thousands of homes. This is not like one guy shouting on a street corner. There were tens of thousands of people in each city getting some extremist newsletter, probably more than one. They and they and they didn't just read them and think, well, I guess the Jews do run us. They're committing acts of violence. The the you know post Brown white citizens councils. They're bombing churches. They're bombing synagogues. There's a real human cost to this stuff. And there's always been a market for some wannabe demagogue who is yelling at you about who is to blame for your problems. And that, you know, that did not start with Trump, that Trump is the latest in a long line of that. I was going to say, too, it's interesting that you mentioned the Liberty Lobby. That was run by, I believe, Willis Cardo. Willis and Cardo, it's, it's yeah. really interesting to me because I think one important thing we have to note is oftentimes uh, – these sort of conspiracy theories will try to veil their anti-Semitism in some way. So uh, an example of that would be if you look at something like Willis Cardo's American Free Press, you yeah. know, if you look at that website without knowing anything about it, it looks like a normal, respectable website. It sounds like, oh, American Free Press. That doesn't sound like some crazy Nazi website. I right. even when I, I was I was in a newspaper class in school and someone referenced that website. The teacher actually <laughs> gave them that website because they didn't know. They didn't yeah. know. And like, it's not a website that will come out and say, yeah, the Jews run the world, but they'll drop these little things like, oh, the Rothschilds or the Zionists. So could yeah. you talk about the ways in which they sort of uh, the far right veils their anti-Semitism? Oh, sure. They, you know, a lot of these these groups and these newsletters had very anodyne names. One of the ones I, I really dive into is one called Common Sense. Uh, a lot of these were put out by a group called the Christian Educational Corporation. Um, they, they, you know, they seem very, uh, you know, very white bread, very middle of the road, like, oh, common sense. I, I would be interested in your newsletter about common sense. And of course, it's full of like the Rothschilds have killed 100 million people. So it's it's done in a way that it it doesn't present the crazy and the hate right up front. And we see that with all sorts of movements, all sorts of cults. You know, if you're talking about something like Scientology, for example, this Scientology is not a guy running up to you screaming about Xenu and volcanoes and a billion year contract. It's a somebody in a nice, you know, coat and tie who goes, hey, you want a free stress test? That then you go, oh, that that sounds interesting. I'll sure I'll do that. And th these people who do this stuff, they know they know it works and they know how it works. They know that you can't hit people with outright hate and conspiracy theories right away. You've got to package it. You've got to market it. And the right, ones you got to ease them stuff, into it. Got to right? ease like, it in. Like, uh, yeah. you know, I, I know there's one group um, 
the Council of Conservative Citizens, which is like yep. basically the modern version of the White Citizens Council. But they they right. sort of use that name, Council of Conservative Citizens, and they'll tell you, you know, I've seen in documentaries where they talk about, well, we sort of ease them into our views. You know, we ease right. new members in. Yeah, right. You you have to you have to know how to market your hate. And so many of these things are packaged up in appealing and interesting ways that can grab you if if it just kind of hits you at the right time and in the right way. And you see that with, you know, uh, modern you know, conspiracy videos. There's a there's a QAnon video called The Plan to Save the World. And very slick. It's very short, doesn't require any knowledge of, of any of this stuff. You know, you go, oh, plan to save the world. I want to save the world. One of the first lines in that movie is, do you ever feel like you can't get ahead in life? And I, I would imagine that every single person watching that is going, yeah, sometimes I feel that way. And so you keep watching. And then eventually it gets to, you know, the Holocaust denial and, you know, Trump was sent by God to purge the liberals and all that other stuff. But it starts very anodyne and very acceptable. So one thing we have to get into, we've talked about the sort of Christian white nationalist Eustace Mullins types, but there's also like a weird New Age connection to this. And I'm specifically sure. thinking of the figure of uh, David Icke. And, sure. you know, what people will always say is, oh, David Icke is actually talking about six foot lizard people, shapeshifters. Mm -hmm. And, I, right. you know, I do get the impression he believes that, but there is an anti-Semitism in there. I mean, this is a dude that references the aforementioned Nesta Webster books that you talk oh, about. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about David Icke and how he fits into this? Sure. So David Icke uh, was one of the figures who kind of started to find the next level of fame in conspiracy theories, was really riding that wave of we're going from the fringe of the fringe, nobody wants to talk about this, to selling out lecture halls and writing best-selling book after best-selling book. And his books are absolutely full of, of insanely anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. I mean, the stuff he says about the Rothschilds is so off the charts offensive that you know, you don't wonder why his publisher dropped him in the mid 90s because they just didn't want any more of this stuff. Of course, then he starts self-publishing and, you know, basically creates an empire out of this stuff. But Ike's conspiracy theory that, oh, you know, lizards in human skin suits run the world. It's it's one part of this very, very dark tapestry because, the, of course, those lizards in skin suits are working with international jewelry and international bankers. And they're the ones who funded both sides of every war. Ike talks constantly about how the Jews were secretly funding the Nazi war machine and the Jews funded the Holocaust and the Rothschilds uh, should be hated by every man, woman and child on the planet. I mean, this is really dark stuff. And he presents it in these very slick looking books, these very slick lectures. And it comes off as very authoritative, very, very knowledgeable but it's, it's like really hideously hateful stuff, you know. Right, and, it, and, and also, I mean, this is a guy who also packages it in sort of, um, in ways he tries to package it in this like nice new agey language. Like what? Yeah. He had a whole book called like Infinite Love is the Only Truth. So it's right. like he's hippieizing the right wing totally. conspiracy stuff. Totally, he's right there at that nexus of kind of new age meets racism meets anti-semitism meets conspiracy theories and of course now that's everywhere you know the sort of wellness to QAnon pipeline is very active you know you're seeing all kinds of conspiracy theories and, and insurrectionists in the yoga community in the holistic health community you know the nexus between 
uh, you know, anti-Semitism and the anti-vaxxers. Isn't Marjorie Taylor Greene a yoga person or? Oh yeah, she was all CrossFit and yoga and all this like natural health stuff. And if you go on TikTok, you know, you throw a rock and you'll find some like wellness influencer who thinks that the cabal doesn't want you to know that you can drink your own urine to cure cancer. I mean, it's all bound up with each other. And of course, somebody like Mullins was a big part of that. Mullins talked constantly about health freedom. And uh, one of his books was Murder by Injection. And this was in the late 80s. There, there was no, you know, Mal- Malibu moms against vaccines at that point. This was like hardcore stuff. And he's talking about how doctors are killing their patients with injections and vaccines and chemotherapy. So it's all, it's been bound up for a long time, but it's so much more mainstream than it's ever been. I was going to say, it's it's interesting that Ike uses that whole uh, lizard people thing, because it reminds me of what the Nazis did with uh, the eternal Jew, basically comparing mm-hmm. Jews to, you know, rats. Right. Right. You have this dehumanizing of of Jews, that they're not only uh, different from us, they're not even human. They're they're vectors for disease. Everywhere they go, they just leave misery and death. And in 1940, when the German people are, are really ramping up to the next stage of what would later be called the final solution, they needed to have things like that. Now, those kinds of films, that kind of propaganda wasn't going to fly in the early 30s. But by the time you get to about 10 years later and suddenly Nazi Germany is uh, has conquered Poland and it's full of Jews that they have to get rid of, well, how do you prepare a population for that? You dehumanize them. You make them cockroaches. You make them vermin and vermin are exterminated. Do you have time uh, to field a few more questions? Maybe go a, a few minutes over. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. Okay, uh, so you mentioned uh, Behold a Pill Horse. I didn't want to talk too much about that, but it is a sort of seminal conspiracy text. And I'll be honest, when I was younger, I read it. And I I mean, I thought it was entertaining. I didn't really take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Sure. But there is a dark side to it. Sure. Um, the, you know, Behold, Behold a Pale Horse, it is still uh, a hugely popular book. It was published in 1991 by this Big uh, with the UFO community, right? It's huge with the UFO community. Because Behold a Pale Horse, it's in subject matter, it's all over the place. It's it's less of a book and more of kind of a, a collection of interview transcripts and phone calls and government documents and, and all this other stuff. But it's really um, it, it's a harbinger of the way that all of these things would mix together. And, and, and you know, Bill Cooper, who wrote it, was this hardcore conspiracy theorist, very anti-Semitic, but also very into you know UFOs and, and kind of uh, FEMA camps and the UN takeover kind of classic 90s conspiracism mixed with what would become very popular later on. And of course, one of his big attacks is on the Rothschilds. He includes in the book the entirety of this document called Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars, which is supposedly a document found in a surplus government Xerox machine in the late 70s that supposedly blows the lid off this secret method of uh, essentially doing kind of computer warfare. And it blames uh, Nathan Rothschild for what uh, the document calls economic inductance, which is like economics done as a system of of, cl- of like an, a closed electronic system. Now, th- this is all ridiculous. And Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars was almost certainly written by a sovereign citizen named Hartford Van Dyke, who uh, and I tell this story in the book. He he wrote a letter to the to a Paranoia magazine, which had published Silent Weapons and and claimed ownership of it, 
Hartford Van Dyke was in prison at the time. Um, he was doing time for paying his taxes with fake checks. So, you know, not exactly the most uh, authoritative source, but this is a hugely popular book. It's still hugely popular right now. It's like number one in a bunch of categories on Amazon, which is astonishing because you can find it everywhere on the internet for free. But it's it, this is one of those books that really caught on and took on a life far beyond anything that Cooper probably ever could have imagined. Yeah, I hope you weren't offended by me saying that I I, I sort of found the hold a pill horse uh, entertaining when I was younger. I feel like it's like almost become stoner literature for some. Young oh, it's totally. People. Yeah, it's totally stoner literature. It's it's I mean, you look at a book like that and you can understand why people would get sucked into it because you feel like there's all these hidden truths. There's all these documents that that are about terrible things that the government doesn't want you to know. And like, why, you know, why doesn't the government want me to know about economic in inductance or UFOs? I mean, it's like cool stuff to talk about when you're really stoned and like don't have anything to watch on TV. And most people just leave that stuff behind. But for some people, it really becomes their worldview. Since you mentioned the early 90s. Uh, sort of uh, conspiracy culture on the right. I think people have largely forgotten that in some ways. Uh, but I mean, this was the era of Timothy McVeigh, Oklahoma City bombing and the militia movement. How much does the militia movement of the 90s and that sort of uh, the, the Clinton body count conspiracy yeah. theories, how does that tie into the moment we find ourselves in today? Well, it was a real mainstreaming of conspiracy culture. Uh, you know, the militias had a big upswing in membership after the Clintons because the Clintons were this, you know, central hub of all these different conspiracy theories. It's right around the time Rush Limbaugh and talk radio really took off. You're getting these really popular books like Behold a Pale Horse, like uh, Pat Robertson's book, A New World Order. Um, I think Creature from Jekyll Island came out right around the same time. So you're seeing a mainstreaming of conspiracy culture, conspiracy books, conspiracy radio. And of course, you have this president who is the center of these this vast web of conspiracy theories that, oh, they killed Vince Foster. They killed Ron Brown. They did Waco to cover up for this other thing or distract from this thing. So and, the, and you, you know what? This, Just to be clear here, I mean, people don't realize like, the industry around Clinton conspiracies. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, I don't blame Hillary Clinton for using that vast right wing conspiracy line. Yeah, that I think she's she right. From Sidney Blumenthal, because like right. this was an industry. It was there is a whole ecosystem. You know, oh, where sure. you could go from the fringe right to World Net Daily and then it gets to Fox News. Yeah. And you could hear Rush Limbaugh doing three hours of it every day. Uh, and you could find it in best-selling books. This was a massive, massive industry, and, and the you know anti-Semitism plays a huge part in all of it, uh, because of course, who's really in control of the Clintons? It's the Jewish cabal. You know, it always comes back to the Jewish cabal. Whatever the details are, those change. And some of the details, especially with the Clintons, were really alluring. I mean, you had all this stuff going on. You know, a lot of people just really didn't like him, and especially hated her. You know, you had stuff like the Clinton body count. It's getting talked about in the congressional record. You have Waco, you have Oklahoma City, you have all of these different events going on as all of this stuff is starting to go from the the sort of the weird dark corners to the mainstream. And of course, that's right around the time the internet starts taking off. And the internet is a massive hub for the early adoption of spreading conspiracy theories. So all of this stuff is connected. And I, I think in ways that seem... To people who don't know much about it, very novel. But if you go back to it, you go, yeah, of course we ended up here. 
Like we have Pat Robertson hitting number one on the New York Times bestseller list. I, talking I was going to ask about that. What, what's the yeah. Robertson connection to all this? Because I think people would think, oh, wasn't he just uh, the, the host of the 700 Club? He was uh, very, very hardcore into this stuff. And so his book, book, The book, New, the New World, World Order, right? Yes, The New World Order. It came That's out in 1991. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, so it's based sort of in the aftermath of the George H.W. Bush speech uh, where he talks about achieving a new world order. It's not the world. Bush is not talking about the new world order. He's talking about a new world order. And of course, this is post-Gulf War. But Robertson takes this and runs with it and puts the Rothschilds at the center of this Illuminati, Freemason, occult plan to take over high finance. He is he is basically taking the work of Nesta Webster and re- repackaging it as his own. Of course, Webster was taking the protocols of the elders of Zion. And nobody really paid much attention to it at first. But a couple of years later, people started to make the connection between the protocols to Pat Robertson. And Robertson goes, you know, up and down. Oh, I love the Jewish people. There is no greater friend to Israel than I am. But, you know, we really need to watch out for what the uh, the financiers are doing, the bankers. That's who I'm really against. And there's this real earnest debate in conservative press of like, is Pat Robertson an anti-Semite? Which is ridiculous because he's laundering the protocols. Like, uh, yeah, but and these books are this is a number one bestseller. It's it's a huge hit. Robertson writes more books. He puts more of this stuff out on the Seven Hundred Club. So this idea that the New World Order, the Illuminati, the Freemasons, the 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 Cabal, the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, they're all working together. It becomes very ingrained in the far right evangelical psyche. One thing I was interested in talking about, and we'll start wrapping up. Um, I have maybe one or two more questions, but sure. uh, I want to talk about uh, the Rothschilds and uh, Zionism, because I thought it mm-hmm. was interesting that the Rothschilds actually uh, were kind of divided on this issue. Yeah, the 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 whole Zionist issue is is interesting because even in the Rothschilds, you don't get real agreement. And I think a lot of these people sort of conflate, the you know, Jews and Zionism and and Jewish wealth. There were Rothschilds who were very much devoted to Zionism, and there were Rothschilds who thought that a Jewish homeland was either unnecessary or a bad idea. And so they, you know, there is not sort of mass monolithic agreement among members of this family. There wasn't in the 1840s. There wasn't in the 1940s. There really isn't now. You know, the Rothschilds don't sit around in a room and sort of plot what they're going to do. There's a lot of different people and they have a lot of different opinions. So, you know, in terms of a Jewish state, some really advocated for it, some really advocated against it. With regards to that, I mean, I cover Israel-Palestine a Mm -hmm. lot on this show. And I I would say I I have a lot of sympathies uh, for Palestinians. But Mm -hmm. one thing that worries me is the way that anti-Semitism can creep into debates about Israel and Palestine. Uh, Could you speak to that and maybe talk about how that kind of anti-Semitism can be avoided? Yeah, I think there is a conflation between Jews and Israel that doesn't really do a service to anybody, particularly American Jews. Uh, American Jews are not responsible for what Israel does and are allowed to have their own opinions and are not loyal to Israel. That that dual loyalty canard is used over and over and over again to think that if you are an American and a Jew, you are secretly somehow also loyal to Israel or more loyal to Israel. You know, Trump would, would do that all the time. We would talk about like 
the you know American Jews should love me because I love Israel and they love Israel. Maybe they love it more than America and they need to get their act together or bad things are going to happen to Israel. I, I think at some point sort of American Jews are just assumed to all be looking out for the best interests of Israel. And it's not true. American Jews are American. I'm not Israeli. I've never been to Israel. My my opinions on Israeli politics have no real bearing on anything. The same way my opinions on German politics don't have any bearing because my grandfather's grandfather's grandfather was born in Germany. It just doesn't it just doesn't apply to my life or what I'm doing or for most American Jews. I think it's a I think it's a conflation that that does a real disservice to how we view what American Jews are going through right now. Do you think it's important uh, to talk a little bit about, um, I know you cover this in the book, the Grand Mufti. And, um, sure. Okay. Could you speak a little bit to that? Sure. So the the Grand Mufti of, of Jerusalem was uh, very much a, a Nazi propaganda instrument. And the Nazis really wanted to inflame anti-Jewish sentiment in the Middle East and of course, the you know it really worked. Now, you know, there's countries with have like a where Jews have like a zero percent approval rating, but there is a, a you know the the Nazis really used all the the tools in their propaganda tool chest, and a lot of that was turning the the Palestinian people against American Jews and British Jews who just didn't really have anything to do with what was going on. So even there, you're getting that conflation between what's happening in what was then Palestine and what's going on with Jews in Europe at that moment. Closing out here, we haven't addressed the title. So if I have people mm-hmm. that don't know what Jewish space lasers is referencing, could you tell the story of Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Jewish space lasers? Because I, you know, interestingly, I don't think she used that term. She used the term Rothschilds Inc., right? Right. She never said Jewish space lasers in that in that now infamous Facebook post of 2018, where Marjorie Taylor Greene was uh, she was not in Congress. She was just a, a CrossFit mama in Georgia who had some questions about the spate of wildfires in California. And her answer was that a solar energy startup had partnered with then Governor Jerry Brown and Diane Feinstein's husband, to uh, you know, accidentally whoopsies burn off a bunch of forest land in California to build their seventy-seven billion dollar high-speed rail boondoggle, and oh, one of the executives at PG&E is also an executive at Rothschild Inc. And oh, isn't that interesting? That wouldn't look good for the Rothschilds to you know have these fires going on. It it doesn't talk about Jews. It never says Jewish, but you know what she's talking about, and the people who would respond to her later as she's in Congress, they know what all of that stuff means. And of course, that post was forgotten. I think it was deleted at some point. And then it was found you know, a couple of years later after she'd been sworn in by Media Matters. And of course, it starts this whole thing of like, Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks a Jewish space laser started the California forest fires. And I mean, you know, everybody a, so had a, th- th- there's like a weather modification conspiracy theory about the Rothschilds. My God. Oh, sure. Sure, that that the Rothschilds have, you know, they control the weather. They can make it snow. They can create earthquakes. They, they, you know, they control the weather forecasting companies, and you know, they they use that to control the other. I mean, it's just this vast, ridiculous plot. 
But Marjorie Taylor Greene's conspiracy about the directed energy weapon, of course, she wasn't the only one saying that. That was a very popular conspiracy theory in 2018. Got recycled again the next year, got recycled again later, got recycled again for the wildfires in Maui using pictures that were taken uh, of like a shaft of sunlight through smoke that were taken in 2018. So these theories that we think are just ridiculous and insane, and who what who would be dumb enough to believe this? Well, yes, they're ridiculous, but people do believe it because they don't understand how these things work. They don't understand how fire works. They don't understand how uh, you know the trees don't burn because they're full of water and they're they're rooted to the ground. I mean, it's not not difficult unless you just don't want to understand it and you want to blame it on a Jewish cabal. In closing, I was just going to say it's insane to me how if you have a conspiracy theory that's already existing you will find some variant of that conspiracy theory uh blaming jewish people you know we were yeah. talking about the clinton, bo clinton body count earlier i've even seen conspiracy theories that are like pro clinton claiming that lewinsky monica lewinsky was a Mossad agent sent by the israelis <laughs> because because of uh i guess clinton's interest in um uh, denuclearization or, or yeah. disarming nuclear weapons. Yeah. So there's literally any conspiracy yeah. theory you can imagine. There is a variant of that blaming Jewish people. Yeah. Uh, how do we overcome this? I mean, is it just something that's always going to be there on some level that we have to push back against? I mean, this stuff worries me because full disclosure, uh, I'm initially from Pittsburgh. So mm -hmm. I was very close sure. to, I lived very close to where Squirrel Hill was where yeah. the synagogue shooting happened. Yeah. And this stuff really bothers me. And I, I feel like we're in a very dangerous time. I'm not saying, I, I don't think we're at the point where we're going to see, you know, people being thrown into camps and stuff. But, no, no. You know, I mean, I think we're seeing uh, an increase in uh, just violence and lone wolf attacks. I'm in Florida right now where there's like open Nazi rallies happening. Yeah. So there are, there are Nazis marching on, you know, on streets in Florida. There are, not there are you know pro Hitler banners being flown on overpasses in LA and synagogues in in Los Angeles being vandalized. This is a this is a perilous time, and I think what we what we can do to push back on it is really understand the the codes that these people use and the terminology when they're talking about globalists, when they're talking about a Soros backed DA, when they're talking about the ADL made you know you know, destroyed half of Twitter's value. They're talking about Jews. They're talking about the same people that they've been talking about for centuries. They're just doing it in a way that gives them enough cover to say, well, we're not talking about Jews. We're talking about the bankers. And, you know, don't you worry about wealth concentration, all that other stuff. They're not actually saying anything about that. They're just blaming Jews for their problems. So I think what we can do is recognize it when we see it and, and call it out and let other people know this is not okay. This is not acceptable. It is, it is the it is another variation on the same kind of organized hatred that in in past times has led to very, very dark places. And we can spot it in our own life, we can spot it in the lives of the people around us, and we can we can call it out and we can name it. Do you think there's also a need, and I promise to let you go after this, but do you mm -hmm. think there's also a need to maybe self-reflect at times within ourselves with the ways in which we may uh, engage in like um, seemingly less malignant forms of anti-Semitism. So for instance, I said I cover Israel-Palestine a lot. And, you know, I think sometimes there's this idea of you have to ask a Jewish person, 
what's your view on Israel Palestine? Right. You know, right. or or yeah. uh, even even like people making seemingly benign jokes yeah. about uh you know, Jews being good with money, or you mentioned those books, uh, the Jewish wisdom of finance or whatever, even those forms of benign anti-Semitism should be, or not benign, but like not, not as malignant as what Marjorie right. Taylor Greene put out there. Right. Uh, should we be questioning those things as well? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think the idea that all Jews like think alike and all Jews should have very learned and researched opinions on Palestine and all Jews are, you know, just good with money and all Jews are stingy and cheap. You know, it, it's, it's, it all adds up. And some of it is not as pernicious as other things, but the assumptions that people have about Jewish people and about the kind of clannishness of Jewish people and the hive mind of Jewish people, just even just assuming that all Jews think alike about Israel is a form of anti-Semitism. Like every Jewish person is just a person and they have their own opinions and their own relationship with money. Most Jewish people are not wealthy. Most Jewish people are not powerful because most people are not wealthy or powerful. So even in our, our base assumptions about the sort of collective Jewish community, I think we can take a step back and think, look, these are all just people. And every person is different. Well, hey, Mike, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work and uh, how, how can they purchase your book? I'm assuming I always tell my listeners, Indie Bookstore, if you can. Yes, absolutely. Um, indie Bookstores, uh, bookshop.org uh, for the hardcover, for the ebook. There's an audio book. Uh, you can get it uh, basically anywhere. And you can find me on Twitter at Rothschild MD, uh, not a doctor. Those are just my initials. And uh, yeah, so I'm I'm out there. I'm still out there on Twitter fighting the good fight and uh, hope to hope to see people out there. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mike Rothschild and that you'll check out his book. Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds, and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Use, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxuse, where you can get the first 200 shows of Parallax Use in the Parallax Use archives, as well as monthly conversations with my pal C. Derek Varn just released a new episode with Derek last week. So please, if you can, join the Parallax Views Patreon. I could really use your support, uh, especially at the beginning of the month, which we're right about to enter. We're getting into October. It's spooky season. Got a few surprises for you for the Halloween season. So, with all that in mind, please check out my Patreon. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it. That's to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm 
I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.